So we're here with composer Henry Jackman, whose latest film is Captain America Civil War. Henry, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. No problem, it's a pleasure. So this is your second film in the Marvel franchise after Captain America the Winter Soldier. Mm -hmm. Also with the Russo brothers directing. Yeah. How is this experience different? Uh, you're right, the directors are the same, but I'd say the tone of the film is very different. For, for a start, it's, it's much more of an ensemble piece. I mean, you might be tempted to think of it as an Avengers film, I mean, it, it, is a, it is a Captain America film. But what I mean by that is the amount of characters, the amount of superheroes that appear on screen, to the delight of many of the fans. I mean, some of them are a bit of a tease. I don't know how much I should and shouldn't say by this point. I think everyone knows. But being a Civil War movie, you've got two opposing sides comprising five or six of you know people's favorite Marvel characters. So it's it's a bigger it's a it shares with Avengers the the scale of of the amount of superheroes. this film it gets more symphonic by the time you get to the second and third act of the film um, it opens up to be a more rich symphonic orchestral score which I which was which was fun and why was that the right sound for this picture it's interesting well I say that I say that it's actually a bit of a combination it, I've made it sound like it's a sort of throwback score which it isn't it uh, I think where that really starts if you listen to the CD where that starts to happen the, the orchestral symphonic tone that I described is kind of when sort of halfway through the CD and in the movie it's when all the superheroes are at the airport and one of the reasons sometimes you can't extend the symphony orchestra in, in a not fantastical but in a descriptive and heroic way is when many things are realistic I mean if you look at movies like Siriano or, or Sicario or something you can't have grand symphonic music because because you're dealing with um, uh, really dark subjects. Exactly, and very contemporary subjects and very psychologically credible environments. It's not, it's not a time for Wagnerian leitmotifs. And in the early part of the film, when, when there's more procedural thing, when you have SWAT teams and Berlin police and all the rest of it, it, it you can't quite unleash the Strauss taps. <laughs> That's right. But then when you get to a certain point in the movie, it's superhero versus superhero, and the, and the humans, the regular public, take more of a back seat. So at that point, it is inherently elevated narratively anyway, because it's sort of Clash of the Titans in a weird way. It, it, it's gods versus it's superhero versus superhero. And then suddenly, grand themes and, and use of orchestra in its proudest symphonic con context um, isn't self-conscious and isn't, um, it, it, you know, it matches it matches what's happening on screen because, and by the time you get to the end of the film, where it's a sort of epic battle, it's not really an action battle. It's a sort of it's a personal clash of the gods, as it were, between Winter Soldier, Iron Man, and, and Captain America. So um, we all found it's shared by the filmmakers, who are just as Joe and Anthony love contemporary stuff, but they also loved how it all got operatic uh, by the end of the film, which I was initially a bit nervous about. I, I was pitching, I promise you, the end of this movie is not action; it's a sort of opera. And I was thinking, well, they're going to shoot me down as some sort of pretentious European. <laughs> but, the, but absolutely not. I mean, they're, they're, they've got a great ear for contemporary stuff, but they like classy and traditional things.
what are the Russo brothers like to work with, and do they uh, appreciate the uh, the role of music in storytelling? Oh yeah, definitely. When in fact, when I first met Joe and Anthony, I can't remember, it was a few years ago. Um, I mean, Joe was playing me stuff on his iPhone on the speaker. You know, we're just having a sort of um, passionate chat about music and playing and getting excited about stuff. No, they love um, they love music and. The, because it's the second film, the great thing about the relationship is they... Because you get some directors who know a little bit about music, which can be a good thing and can be not such a good thing. Um, and they have such a fantastic... Their viewpoint is um, so directorial and narrative that, that when we work together on music, they kind of trust me to find a solution. And so if ever there's... If ever we're kind of stroking our beard wondering what to do, there's not a discussion about violas or... Or which notes to play. It's always a filmmaking discussion about like about the extent to which something could be symphonic, or maybe this could be more tense, or where could we put your thriller theme? And and the me the mechanics of getting the music done, um, they're very uninvasive while still being, um, you know, in command as you should be as uh, directors of the overall sort of feel of it. So, no, they love it. They love music. The storyline in Civil War is is obviously large scale, but there's a tragedy at the beginning of the film that sort of affects everybody in the Avengers mm. group and beyond. And I wondered how you treated that musically and if that, you know, sort of was a way in for the approach for the whole picture. Yeah, well, that's an interesting structural... <clears throat> These One of the things I like about the Russos, they're, very, they're quite clever. Um, you sort of feel that they were concentrating in their literary criticism classes. In as much as the... It's quite classical, the structure of this. And in some ways, it's a thriller. I mean, talking to Joe and Anthony, they have huge admiration for um, a lot of 70s political thrillers. And um, whilst it is a superhero movie, actually, the whole Zemo thread and how that works and, and how you're left dangling, and the, the scene you just mentioned right at the beginning, when Winter Soldier is uh, sent on a mission to dispatch um, Tony Stark's parents, is a little bit in that structurally unknown area where you're, you're presented with something early and then you're suspended and you don't quite know why you've seen it or what it's for but you get an um it's a bit like seven in a way i know that sounds like a really weird jump to make there's a big payoff later yes and, and it's that funny feeling an audience recognizes if a thriller is well made that you're seeing something that you don't quite understand but you're not so frustrated as to be irritated with the filmmakers but sufficiently suspended to know that you have a you have an overall sense of knowing that this is going to go somewhere and trusting of the filmmakers that they'll deliver without quite knowing what on earth is going on and that it's a fine line to um to 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 dance and in fact the flashback winter soldier music there sort of appears again later um when winter soldier's talking about the fact that there's multiple winter soldiers uh, there's a thread there, and there's this. Um, there's a thread uh, right from the beginning of the film. The whole, the whole Russian Winter Soldier thing has this sort of motif on the flutes that's almost a little bit sort of Jerry Goldsmith in, in old school um, orchestration, and that sort of crops up every now and then, which I think helps because there's a lot of. Um, I always think a good thriller is a bit like a ping pong ball, and you let go of it, and it goes dunk, dunk. Dun, 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 you know, and every time there's something where the audience might feel like, uh, what? <laughs> How does this tie in? That thriller motif just keeps coming in. So there's some symphonic version of consistency while the fabric of the story's got quite a few different threads. And, you know, I don't think people are, 
um, conscious of things like that. But it, I think it just starts to glue it together a little bit. So funnily enough, given how many people always ask me, oh, did you put this theme and that theme and the theme for Spider-Man theme? For... And, you know, there is a Spider-Man theme and a Black Panther motif and all the rest of it. But actually one of the most useful themes um, narratively for the movie to, to because part of the job of music isn't to diversify everything and fragment everything. It's to bring everything together. And with that many superheroes, actually the thriller theme and the Civil War theme, which are more universal and don't pertain to any individual um, superhero, actually became the most useful themes for the job of narrative cohesion. And we had fun with the Spider-Man theme and Cap's theme and everything. But um, it, it, it's an interesting, because it was so many things at once, actually your best bet isn't to have 17 you know, see a superhero, hear a superhero every single time. If you're smart, really, you've got to figure out why they're on the screen, what they're doing, and what the narrative, um, uh, what the narrative structure is. And, and you can use things like a Civil War theme and a, and a thriller to actually bind many disparate things into one story as an extra layer of, of storytelling, hopefully without anyone noticing. Yeah, and in a case like this, there are so many superheroes right. in, in the picture, you'd be crazy to invent Ooh. themes for everyone. Although I am interested, this was the movie now, this is the movie that introduces the Black Panther for yes. the first time. Yeah. And I wonder if you can talk for a second about how you treated him. Not with congas. <laughs> Not with congas and bongos. With no, uh, yes, uh, musical racism to be avoided at all costs. I, lo I love the Black Panther character, and I mustn't give too much away, but in the actual, one of the, one of the beats I like about um, uh, his country um, is that there is the tradition and the ritual and the sense of almost um, a tribal leadership, but actually their society is also very technologically advanced, which I really, otherwise it's the cliche of like, you know, oh, Africa, therefore incredibly traditional, you tribal know, drums and tribal things. drums and all sorts of ghastly words like primitive start coming out of the cupboard, you know, and all of that is jettisoned. And one of the things I wanted to go for with Black Panther, funnily enough, when he's talking about his anti, but having said that, the, the sense of the tribe and ritual is actually quite strong. And when he's talking about when, when his father passes away, he gives a quite poetic speech about the role of the Black Panther in his society and how it protects the people. It's sort of a metaphysical speech. And I actually went for a sort of um, um, an aerophone, sort of uh, um, an African aerophone. So it, it it almost has, it's it's sort of the African version of the Karate Kid. <laughs> Just because you don't expect it, you know. And so when, when people, when he, when he's talking, when Black Panther's talking about his past and his ancestors, I just wanted to give it something ever so slightly shamanic. And there's a kind of ethnic feel to yes, it. But not so geographically placeable, you know, not as in the first thing you would think of uh, for Africa. The other thing I used a lot for Black Panther, because I wanted, I wanted to make sure that there was also an orchestral tonality pertaining to Black Panther so that it wasn't, oh, Black Panther, so we'll use all tribal instruments um, to give him the authority and to wed him into all the other um, and give him the same vitality and credibility as the other superheroes. I actually ended up using a lot of muted trombones. And the great thing about muted trombones, you have to get the right mute, because if you get the wrong mute, it sounds like Roger Rabbit. <laughs> um, but if you get the right mute, it has a brittle and vengeful quality to it and if you listen carefully in the first when his father is dying you just get the first swells of these uh, uh, muted trombones and it appears again when he's talking to Natasha post the bombing um, 
So uh, I found Muta Chambones as a really nice way of bringing him into the symphonic fold and also giving it a bit of a bit of edge and a bit of vengeance. One of the, I think, attractive things about this movie is that it isn't really good guys and bad guys. There are shades all through. <clears throat> and I wonder, does that make your job more difficult yeah. as a composer? <laughs> yes, you can't, we can't tip the scales. I mean, personally, intellectually, I find it much more satisfying. Because if you don't have that, you know as a film composer, somewhere in Act 3, there's going to be an enormous fight between the good guys and some sort of enormous creature or thing that's been... You know what I mean? We've all seen... I don't know how many cues I've seen called Mighty Battle, Final Showdown, The Final Countdown, you know, blah. And, and the great thing about this movie, that's what I love about the Russos, it isn't that. Um, you're right, it isn't just a good versus evil film, it's a sort of clash of ideologies about how powerful entities should be uh, accountable. And then the denouement is, is a sort of internal conflict that is um, threaded by a villain who's a very unusual and seemingly not particularly powerful because his whole strategy is to guide the superheroes against each other rather than tackle them on his own. So it's, it's full of these odd and um, idiosyncratic touches that I love. And how does that influence <clears throat> you when you're actually sitting here writing music and figuring out exactly what works in what scene and for which character? Well, I think the main discovery, uh, I mean, some of these discoveries were made when they were temping it, actually, because um, it's... Temping a, meaning... Yes, it's, it's a process that which we composers both love and hate. Um, when they very first put a cut together, you know, that's kind of slinging music in to get a feel for what works. And they just kept finding for the first almost two acts of the film, if you keep tilting things to sound quite heroic in Captain America, you've, you've ruined the film. Because it is, in fact, a delicately balanced argument that is felt strongly on both sides. And Tony Stark's arguments, although he's motivated somewhat by guilt on, on some of his previous commercial military uh, endeavours, it is a finely balanced argument. And, and there's a scene when they're all talking away and Don, uh, Don Cheadle says, uh, that's not the character name. Um, War Machine. Yes, War Machine says to Captain America, that's dangerously arrogant. The idea that you're always going to make the right cause is such an arrogant, you, you've got to understand that. Whatever, the point is that the, the, these are fine, it's a sort of 50-50 uh, balance. And it's only later that Cap has vindicated. So it, 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 there's, it, it meant that you could much more easily tip the balance of the film with music than otherwise might be the case because the movie itself is so finely balanced. And it's only when um, Cap's sort of idealistically libertarian philosophy turns out to be correct all along and Tony is back on board that you can really let go and, and hand the film hand the film to him. Up until then there's a lot of confusion and there's internal conflict and the thriller part of it because you don't understand what Zemo's up to and you wonder about um, Captain America's, he, he's so um, wedded to the, not literally, he's so um, uh, concern for the Winter Soldier. You wonder if it's clouding his his judgment. And you really wonder if it is clouding his judgment. So That was it, my thought. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, it, and it does. So it, what kind of challenge does this present to you in terms of composition, in terms of creating music? Well, it means that, for example, the you would think, oh, I'm doing a Captain America film. So therefore, you know, we're going to be busting out the Captain America theme all the time. That's, uh, that's surely what's going to be happening in this film. But actually, it turns out for the, like I say, for the first two acts, coming up with the thriller theme, which is harmonically more circuitous and is, is not at all 
um, you know, from the lineage of fanfare for the common man. It's a, it's a more serpentine use of harmony. And the Civil War theme actually became more useful um, musical uh, Lego to, to build on. That's not to say Cap doesn't come through it, but it, it, it took a while to figure that out because otherwise you're just, I, I'd be writing the music for a, for a film that is not the film. <laughs> How are how early were you brought on? Uh, with enough time to, because it seems like there's a lot of music in this film. Yeah, there is a lot of music. No, it was it was ample. It was ample. Um, I can't quite remember when I first saw, but it was in. Um, I mean, what tends to happen is, understandably, directors feel so uh, passionately about waiting to the point where there's enough of their vision in their cut to be a a, a, a version they can be proud of and let invite other people into the process. Um, so as soon as they reach that point, which uh, in Joe and Anthony's case, I think I, I saw it. I, don't know, I was I was writing for four months, wow. four or five months. Um, so they had it in really good shape pretty early. I mean, obviously there's not all the visual effects and all the rest of it, but in terms of the structure, it really didn't change much from when when I saw it. I mean, some movies you work on slide around a bit and you know, reshoots and slight changes of structure and approach and everything. This was pretty much from the first time I saw it to the end was really sweetening it rather than having to deal with completely different structural issues. But four months, that seems like a long time. Is that unusually long in terms of time uh, on a film? No, well, I always say if you want to take a movie seriously and you're just working like every day, three months is a healthy amount of time to get a massive score done. So anything above that is bonus and anything less than that just makes it a bit, bit quicker and a bit tighter. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's probably a little bit more than usual, but it was it was a pretty tough nut to crack for the reasons we were just discussing. It's not a straight up and down hero versus villain film, um, and ha and had uh, quite a, quite a few threads happening at the same time. So I was glad to have it made a difference having the time. Uh, you recorded in England, mm -hmm. and which studio? Uh, Air Studios. Is that a place you like to record? Yes, um, I think I've been to Abbey, but I mean probably more. I've probably been to Air more. Yeah, I've done a bunch of films there. Why is that a good place to record? I'm um, not that Abbey isn't. No, they're of course. Both, they're of both course. great. Um, <clears throat> well, several reasons really. Firstly, I get to go to lots of restaurants in London <laughs> and stay at Charlotte Street, and I'm English. No, it's nice to see Blighty again. Uh, no, but seriously, the hall, the main hall, is great. Uh, when everyone's playing together, every now and then you do a movie that has so much production in it that you need separation. It's a bit more sort of pop production. What was good about this movie is just everyone in the room together and that main hall is great once you pack it full of you know a hundred people the root it just it just sort of comes alive and the players are fantastic not that the players in the, players in the US are fantastic as well but they're, they're great over there. Did you have a hundred piece orchestra? Was it that I big? think if you had well we did, the one thing we did do separately is choir but if you threw choir in the room yeah probably a bit more if they if it was strings woods brass and well and actually we did um, some per Percussion separately. It was probably more actually. I'd have to find it. It was probably about 120 when you add it all up. I did notice there was choir in the score, and I'm always curious how do you know when choir is appropriate to add to a scene? Yeah, I tend to be, I'm a little bit of a snob with choir in, in probably the wrong kind of way, in as much as I was a chorister at St. Paul's Cathedral Choir School. So choir to me is Palestrina, Talis. Uh, Orlando Gibbons and the great sort of heritage of European church music and very often in Hollywood it's just when you get to act three you just slam the choir in doing big held chords <laughs> which I always feel like oh I don't know 
Um, so I, I tend not to just sort of, when you get to the third act, figure out what all the harmonies are and have giant block chords on, on choir. I don't really like that. Um, but so I try to use it in a slightly more creepy... The choir tended to be more on the Zemo stroke Winter Soldier, disturbing quarter-tone bends. Uh, there was a little bit of choir right at the end in, a, in an epic fashion, but the quite sparse use of the choir was usually a bit more quarter-tonal and unsettling, um, which I enjoy. There's something about hearing something holy, but harmonically perverted that's unsettling. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, I want to ask you about the last track on the album, which is called Adagio. Yes. What is that? Is that not in the score? What are we listening no, to? No, what that is is... I felt like I was very lucky in having a, a complex villain like Zemo, played by Daniel Brühl, because he's not grand, he's not super powerful, he's almost in the grip of an existential crisis that has a, he's sort of a nihilist. And it meant that very often, if you're lucky, you can get to do more posh music for the villains. And that Adagio, that was my first, it was, like, it was just a, a standalone suite where I was saying to the Russos, you know, I feel like he's so um, empty in a way. Even though he has this vengeful plan, he's so almost disconnected in a, in, in a weird, perverted, sort of almost autistic kind of a way that maybe we could reach into sort of Pnufnik and kind of East European type mid-century, you know, without, I'm a, clearly I'm not as good a composer as Pnufnik or anything. But the, that harmony um, is not something that you might use all the time. You know, it's, it, it's, you'd, you'd need a character like Zemo to get away with that, that. And that piece at the end was just, I just felt like, I was imagining if you were Zemo, what would be the twisted, um, tragic piece that would sort of represent your nihilism and weird suppressed anger and schemingness. And it has very spidery, harmony it's quite sort of octatonic but it has a couple of moments in the harmonic progression that are diatonic so it's uh, I kind of enjoyed writing that that would be if I had to play a piece that isn't a cue that would be the sort of you know piece you'd play at a concert or something sure of course your background includes both classical training and work with major pop artists mm. like Seal and producers like Trevor Horn do you think that range of experience has contributed to your success as a film composer oh I think definitely Oh, and you, you can include Hans Zimmer in that. I mean, that's, that's where I was going to get. Yeah, to um, definitely. I mean, there's nothing wrong if if one were exclusively a symphonic composer and was completely au fait with um, all the use of harmony and melody that that should involve. Meaning, you'd have a musical knowledge from sort of Talis through to Benjamin Britten. That's that will. You know, you could perfectly reasonably expect to have some sort of career in music on the on the back of that. But on the other hand, it is 2016 and there are many things that need to be described in film sonically where just the symphony orchestra um, might box it in. And might, like, imagine like I, I actually personally love the score for Sicario is a good example. Now, there's not an awful lot of there's not none, but there, it's not a traditional symphonic score. And, and, it, and it's good that it isn't. And there's a really imaginative and minimal use of because um, I don't know. Some people feel like electronic music. Uh, some people are maybe not familiar with 
quite how eclectic, what a wide church it is, because you know, you've got club music, you've got ambient, you've got a lineage that goes through sort of Harold Budd and Brian Eno, then you've got all the lineage that comes through club music, house music and garage and dubstep and all the rest of it. And it's, it's a, there are many aspects of electronic music which are very, very handy in terms of vocabulary for film music. It's not like, you know, you're going to do a school that's going to be pounding away like a club for two hours, but there's, there's all sorts of textual and production techniques that you pick up in electronic and pop music that um, I'd be very sorry personally not to have or to have experienced. And then, you know, if you can find a way to use it and fuse it with symphonic elements it's it can sometimes you don't need to i mean you know i can think of lots of cues in animated films where that you know there isn't any of that but wreck it ralph actually has a you know that had some pop stuff in there that was a old analog keyboard so i personally would be um sad if that hadn't been part and grateful for all the people i mean trevor horn is a complete legend the fact that i somehow stumbled into working with him is it was an education without me even realizing and then, of course, when you started in films, you were working with Hans Zimmer. Yeah. And I wonder what uh, that experience contributed to where you are now. Well, it's a similar thing. Hans, if you go back to the 80s, he was running around with a Prophet keyboard in, in recording studios in London making records. Um, and uh, the one thing I forgot to mention about that, actually, is it necessarily... Um, it, I had a very, very posh uh, musical upbringing, went to you know, Oxford and, all, and writing these long-winded 11-side essays about the distinction between true ver and true vador music in 14th century France. Right? And none of that is necessarily good for connecting with people. And one of the things to deflect a sort of ivory tower artistic snobbery, an experience I always really like, is when you go to a preview, especially in animated films, you're sitting there with 800 kids all laughing at, at the fart jokes while you're busy having some sort of, you know, highfalutin thought about the um, structural integrity of Puss and Humpty Dumpty's relationship. What you forget is kids laugh at the fart jokes. And one of the important part, I'm not, this isn't to um, degrade pop music, but one of the inherent properties of pop music is it's popular. And the, uh, no one's trying to write, an apart from progressive rock maybe, no one's trying to write an 11-minute inaccessible piece of music. The idea is to communicate and connect with people in an ordinary and accessible way. And I'm not saying all music should be like that, but I think it's a really important and valuable discipline to be engaged in a type of music, uh, pop music especially, that is um, accessible. And going back to Hans, that's where he came from. And I think one of Hans's geniuses is he'll often, even though he's moved a hell of a long way from Rain Man, <clears throat> but he will often take a symphonic language and find um, almost like a pop way of doing it. Now, that's not to say it sounds, uh, uh, you know, second second class or anything. I'm just, it's to do with the structure of it and to do with almost finding a hook within the symphony orchestra and he's great at communicating with people oh definitely i mean he yeah exactly he is that i think that's his that's his genius so that was also he's just great at um he's not obsessed by standalone music it's music to picture his instinct to picture it to him it's sort of one experience there's no oh i'm gonna go and write this 11 minute piece even if it isn't you know doesn't do what the film needs he's in case he's, he's just wired to story which is if you're not wired to story, you're going to have problems. <laughs> Are there any other experiences that you had during the Captain America process that we haven't talked about that uh, you might want to single out or find interesting? Or uh, well, I, there was a there was a well, I don't know if people find this interesting, but anyone who's um, 
involved personally in the artistic process might find this slightly interesting. When I got to the third act of the film, where there's this big, almost personal clash between Iron Man, Captain America, and Winter Soldier, I secretly knew that it should harmonically change and become more operatic and commit to some fairly legit harmonies that you would not ordinarily find in a lot of contemporary film score, like half diminished chords and sort of, you know, there's a sneaky bit of Beethoven starts to appear under the bonnet. And I just couldn't write that cue because I kept putting my toe in the water and going, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I'd sort of go back out and then I, I'd sort of write the end more along the lines of earlier cues, like the tunnel chase in the film. And I keep coming back and I kept ringing the uh, picture editor going, you know, what about if the end was more operatic? So yeah, yeah, just, just you know, do whatever. Like, nah. But it, it was this weird crossroads where if I crossed the Rubicon, the whole of the last eight minutes was going to be completely different. And if they didn't, if they didn't go for it, I was going to lose. It, it was one of those, um, like a naval situation where if you change one degree, you'll actually end up in Barbados as opposed to, and because I knew that, I kept procrastinating. And eventually one morning I just came and said, oh, sod it, come on, let's just do it. And it wrote itself so quickly because I'd kind of pent up all this. And I was a bit nervous about playing it and they all came and heard it. And Joe and Andrew were like, oh, it sounds like an opera. This is this is great. Which, thank God, they had the uh, imagine. No, because, you know, it wasn't necessarily the most obvious route to take. And you could treat it like a fight scene and an action scene, um, which I didn't want to do. So, um, yeah, I think just every now and then, if you think of something counterintuitive, even if you procrastinate a bit, you should just go for it and see what happens. So does all this suggest that people who dismiss these films and these scores as comic book movies and mm. comic book scores aren't really giving them enough credit because it's great. It's more than just a comic Well, book I think movie. it depends on the movie and the filmmakers. I'm sure we could think of superhero movies that aren't much more than comic book uh, superhero movies. And if you try to scrape away and have a sort of literary criticism class on the underlying themes, you might find you've got about one paragraph. Whereas I'd say this film, if we really had, you know, if we wanted to sit around and bore, bore the pants off everyone, you could definitely have a long winded discussion about political accountability and what it means to be in the same way that um, uh, in X-Men, some of those X-Men films are and to you've do. You've done one of them. Yes. Those. Yes. And they're to do with otherliness and, you know, any type of. Um, minority in society who doesn't feel represented, whether it's to do with being gay or with, whether it's to do with African-American injustice or, or any sense of there being a group who feels that they're not in a mainstream and, and people react to them differently. That's what, you know, if you wanted to get a bit more intellectual about X-Men, that beat is definitely covered. And and in, in the Russo's films, um, I, th I think there's definitely a substance. I think it would be a superficial analysis to think it's just a, a big fight between a bunch of people with some weird powers if you scrape away underneath it's sort of you could have a political chat about libertarianism versus democratization of of power and in the second one it was all to do with if again if you wanted to get um npr about it it was it was mostly to do with um the wisdom or not of preemptive action so it was in fact the second captain america movie to me was very resonant of a um uh, a speech that eisenhower gave 
on um, once he stepped out. There's a, there's a famous tradition, or was, I don't know if it's still done, when, when the president steps down, there's a sort of speech he can give to the people. And President Eisenhower's military, industrial military complex speech was warning the American people of the dangers of having, it's a sort of snowballing effect. Once you have a commercial industry that generates hugely effective and powerful weapons, there's a sort of unvirtuous circle where that feeds into politics and can almost necessitate wars by the nature of, of this sort of weird feedback loop, which is a very visionary speech. Anyway, the second Captain America film is all about the fact that um, Fury's got these huge... Um, machines that can sort of preemptively analyze, they've got a supercomputer that can analyze upcoming um, uh, dangerous activity. And well, it might, it's a bit like Minority Report. Well, you know, maybe it's a good idea if we stop things before they happen. But Captain America, being a sort of 40s, 50s, um, full on American libertarian, like, that's ridiculous. You can't, I mean, that that's just, that's the beginning of the end. That's a, That's the beginning of a totalitarian. State. So all of this must mean that your job as composer perhaps is more creatively satisfying? I think so, yeah. Well, apart from anything else, because you just get more interested, you end up... I mean, you can tell if a movie's interesting, because you end up, you know, you have a music meeting with the directors, and you end up in a 20-minute conversation about political freedom versus... And, and all of that is sort of stirring the juices to, to try and find out what's the essence of the film. So I know that, you know, you, that there are such... Um, fanatical comic book fans and everyone's got that image they know of people at comic-con and they're all dressed up and there's a lot of fun to it and what's wrong with that you know there's because by the same time i'm making it sound hugely uh, pretentious they're also great fun yeah. let's not forget that they're entertaining they've got amazing special effects or action sequences you know it's not an npr you know it's a massive entertaining film so there's all these things are happening at once it's just that we've focused on and why not some of the more serious parts of the film. So I would recommend, for example, anyone who feels like, oh, I don't want superhero films because they're just silly and meaningless, I would thoroughly recommend this one because they might have to stop in their tracks and slightly change their opinion. What can we expect from you in the months to come? What else uh, are we look, can we look forward to? Uh, well, I'm very excited about an upcoming film um, directed by Nate Parker called Birth of a, controversially called Birth of a Nation. Um, people familiar with their film history will be aware that there's a, a, a very great but famously racist film um, called Birth of a Nation that was in, I think, 1915. And Nate Parker, sort of, in his typical um, provocative ways, grabbed that title, repatriated it, and made a um, really quite important film about um, Nat Turner and the slave uprising. Um, which I was very, I was a very different experience to Captain America. I mean, he, at the time of meeting Nate, it, things were very unformed. There was no release date. There was no distribution. There was no studio interested. There were, he just sort of came to me and said, I've got, I've got a script and, and that's all I've got. <laughs> and I read it and it was, because the thing about that sort of film is um, sometimes when the subject matter is either socially important or, or morally worthy, there can be a level of forgiveness if the actual film isn't that great because the subject matter is is something um, really relevant. But what I think is such an achievement with Nate is all of those things are happening. He's kind of a political activist. He's trying to draw people's potentially complacent 
um, viewpoint to something that's happening right now in this country. So that's really a political and activist type mentality. At the same time, he's actually made a very well-crafted, as a debut director, um, you know, the actual movie and the acting and the cinematography, he's made a beautiful film that also packs a massive um, political punch that um, should make... I, I can't imagine many people not being in some way made to feel uncomfortable or provoked or thoughtful or upset or angry or um, it's not a gentle film. <laughs> and that'll be out later this year. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. And definitely worth saying. Th Henry Jackman, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much.